In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. Hello. Welcome, everybody, to a community conversation about politics uh, by the AJC. I am Leroy Chapman. I am Deputy Managing Editor here. And on behalf of our editor, Kevin Riley, and the leadership team, we welcome you and we thank you for spending a little time with us. So we're here to talk about the AJC poll. And that poll released last week. It's been reverberating. We've been writing stories about it. Uh, It's been a fantastic piece of uh, information and research for us to help us know what's on the minds of Georgians in this very important race. And I think we all know how important it is. Uh, This not only is the presidential election, uh, Georgia is in a position of having two U.S. Senate seats up for grabs. So Georgia is going to be a factor in who wins the presidency and a factor in the power in the balance of power in Washington, D.C., because of the the U.S. Senate is very much up for grabs. So we're going to talk to you uh, about what's going on and the people who bring you uh, politics every single day for the AJC are going to talk about what they've they've seen. So we'll go ahead and start uh, introducing who uh, is on the panel today. We'll start first with Jim Galloway. Uh, You know him. He's your insider. Jim Galloway's been with the AJC uh, for four decades. And if uh, he's one of the deans of uh, political reporting in this country. Uh, So we're happy to have uh, Jim today talk a little bit about what's going on. And uh, we've got also Mark Meese. Mark Meese. Normally, he is uh, covering the uh, South Carolina, I mean, I'm sorry, I said South Carolina, the Georgia House. Um, he is uh, also uh, usually uh, uh, covering voting full-time because voting is such a big issue for us. So Mark's now covering voting. Uh, we also have Tia Mitchell. Tia Mitchell's our Washington correspondent. Uh, she's been especially busy this political year with everything that's going on. Uh, so she's up in D.C. and uh, operating under the COVID protocol in D.C., which has sort of made uh, this job a little bit more difficult, but she's doing a fantastic job there. We also have Greg Bluestein. Uh, Greg Bluestein is our lead political reporter here at the AJC. Uh, he uh, is a, a guy who puts up superstar numbers, but he uh, he behaves like he's the last guy on the bench. So uh, we appreciate Mr. Bluestein and all his effort. And we have someone new to introduce. It's Patricia Murphy. Patricia Murphy is our newest addition, and she joins us. Uh, after uh, her stint at Roll Call and some other places. Uh, you'll know, learn and know more about uh, Patricia. She actually wrote a story for us today, and she's going to be uh, helping us uh, th- uh, cross the finish line with elections. 
and we're glad to have her. And finally uh, is Susan Potter. Susan Potter is our politics senior editor. So she's the person who keeps the trains running. She's the person who handles our poll. Uh, so she has her hands on this stuff uh, all the time. So welcome, guys. And so we're going to start uh, with, with Greg and with Jim. Uh, talk a little bit about this poll, because uh, we've got some tight races here, and we've got uh, voters who have uh, made their minds up and a few that are undecided. So what did uh, what did this poll tell us about uh, the state of the race now? Well, if, if I could start, it was, it was a really fascinating look at the at at at, at three of the top races in the state uh, the presidential race and two senate races but it was also it, it also showed how they how they kind of uh mix and and combine with with some of the major currents of uh of the day i mean we've got concerns over voting and the coronavirus we've got concerns over police violence uh and uh and 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 this poll kind of tied it all together uh, top lines. Uh, top lines. What was probably not surprising. Uh, we, we we had a 47 47 percent tie uh, between uh, uh, incumbent President Donald Trump and Democrat Joe Biden. Uh, we had a a a, uh, a a very volatile race for U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler's seat, which has 21 candidates and just this mixture of of, of Democrats and Republicans. Uh, uh, fighting for a, for a runoff, and then you you have a very competitive race between uh, U.S. Senator David Perdue and and uh, Republican John Ossoff. And two numbers that really struck out to me stuck out to me uh, when it came to the presidential contest, which, as Jim Galloway mentioned, was at forty seven forty seven, so as close as you can get. Uh, and one was thirty, and that was the proportion of white voters that, that backed Joe Biden's campaign. It doesn't seem like a lot. But in Georgia politics, that is that is a tremendous number for Democrats. Compare that to 2016 exit polls showed Hillary Clinton got about 21 percent of the white vote in Georgia. So that shows you how the dynamics are shifting um, in that in that sense. But the other number is 85. And that was the percentage of black supporters, black voters who were supporting um, Joe Biden's campaign, uh, although he has an overwhelming number of support among African-American voters. Um, he still has room to grow and his campaign wants to see those numbers closer to 95 percent. So it still shows there's some there's some African-American voters. They're still undecided. And um, as the campaign kind of winds down uh, I, and, and his campaign makes decisions about whether to send people in person, including Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, I think that'll be a major factor in trying to consolidate the rest of that vote. Yeah, that, that on on that thirty percent support from white voters, that's that's that 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 gets back to the old old formula uh, that Democrats used used to to really hold on to power in Georgia until two thousand two, when when that biracial coalition broke up. So you've got a reformation of that of that coalition. One more important number uh, in the presidential contest is in the number four. Only four percent of voters said they were undecided so far, and and with with this debate that we've got, uh, first debate that we've got coming up this evening, uh, that's who that's who these two candidates are going to be talking to. So so Jim, give us some perspective. Uh, four uh, undecided that that feels like a low number. How does that compare historically? That's that's a that's a very low number. I mean, usually usually at this point, uh, you know, in 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 late September, you might see twelve, thirteen percent, and that and then it start to go down. 
uh, go down uh, until the last two weeks, and 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 maybe it would never even go down. You know, you'd you'd still have people who who refuse to say, but but this is a hard this is a hard four percent, and and I'll t- I'll tell you, if, I mean that's one of the hallmarks of this this uh, electoral year. Is to me what's been remarkable is that despite the pandemic. Despite uh, the, the 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 unrest over police violence, these numbers have been rock solid in the presidential contest. Even in Georgia, it it, it just has not been a race that has moved. It's uh, people are very very set on this. It's a stubbornly uh, undynamic race. I mean, I think Jim's exactly right. The the think about what's happened over the last year: an impeachment proceedings. Uh, the pandemic, the economic fallout, the, the the protests for racial justice, now an unexpected Supreme Court vacancy, and yet poll after poll, and it's not just this one AJC poll. We've had four polls now in the last two weeks that have showed similar dynamics, and national and battleground polls of other battleground states have also showed these similar dynamics. So you're seeing very, very close races in Georgia. You're seeing Biden with leads in battleground and national polls uh, that seem to be unchanged by whatever's happening. And I think in, in Georgia, this reminds me a lot of the 2018 race, because we also saw as October neared polls showing um, a, a, a slim number of undecided voters. Many voters had made up their minds. And so I, I wrote a story about how, uh, you know, the, the, the final month of the race would, would come down to uh, energizing the base. And I got a call from one of the uh, Governor Kemp's uh, staffers who said, you're exactly right. I mean, that, that, that is where we're seeing this race too now. You guys are finally seeing our poll numbers had already shown, which was that it's not a battle as much. They're still trying to convince those undecided voters. But in tonight's debate, you're also going to see energizing, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats from both sides who have already made up their minds, but who might not be as willing to vote for whatever reason, because they're worried about the pandemic. They're worried about um, getting out and about. They're, they're not that they're a low interest voter. Whatever those reasons are, you're going to hear Joe Biden and Donald Trump tonight just drive that point home to get out there and vote. Uh, Leroy, you're, you're muted. I'm sorry. So tell me this. <laughs> so if you, if, uh, what are we to make of the president's visit to Atlanta then? Because you're talking about uh, firing up the base versus opportunities that might exist. Uh, he came here Friday. He came here after our poll showed a neck and neck tight race that was statistically, you know, too close to call, of course. So uh, what what's what are we to make of that? Well, I, I think what you have to make of it is is, is, is it's a continuation of, of what we've seen since June. He's been advertising on TV uh, uh, in Georgia since June, and and it is just hard to it's hard for me to explain how unusual that is. Uh, Georgia is since since 2002. Georgia has been such a reliably reliably red state. You know, it's been the ATM. People could go come here and withdraw money in terms of campaign cash and spend it uh, uh, elsewhere in the state. Now, now they're having to pay attention. It's uh, it, it's quite in, incredible. And then you've got you've got these two Senate races where you've got. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent and in fact that's that's right at least at the moment that's what's driving the the uh uh the the political conversation on tv it's it's all these senate ads not just from the candidates themselves but from all these super PACs that are playing Leroy, you're back on mute uh one one more question (laughs) too about about the poll and and the horse races so uh for the races for u.s senate uh, opportunities, 
and any liabilities that showed up in, in that poll for any of the, either of the races or both the races. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say what was really interesting in the, um, the Senate polls, well, for, first let's talk about the more conventional race, which is between David Perdue and John Ossoff. Um, it showed uh, the candidates neck and neck among, um, uh, among many independent voters, which te- tend to lean uh, ideologically to, to the right in Georgia, um, not this year and really not in 2018 or 2016 either. Um, so they've got some ground to make up. Uh, and both can, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing Senator Perdue, um, although he honed a reputation as one of President Trump's most loyal allies, he's still talking about that when he's reaching out to conservative voters. But when he's on the airwaves here in Metro Atlanta, you're not hearing President Trump's name. You're hearing he's a pragmatic problem solver. You're hearing that he wants to shore up healthcare system. You're hearing, you're hearing he wants to you know, revive the economy, but you're not hearing Trump, Trump, Trump. Now, conservative voters in North Georgia might be hearing that. In the other race, um, and we call that the special, the 21 candidate special election, it is a lot messier. That's the, kind of the best verb, I, the, the adjective I, can, I have to describe it. Um, we'll talk about this a little later, but our poll had all three of the top contenders, Reverend Warnock, Doug Collins, and Senator Leffler, all within striking distance of each other. But things have changed in the last week, especially according to the latest poll that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but it's very, very fluid, that race still. And there are some heated calls for Matt Lieberman, who is around 10% in the AJC poll, to get out of the race and clear the way for Reverend Warnock. I just oh, one, one more addition, Leroy, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the race uh, between uh, David Perdue and John Ossoff, uh, uh, the AJC poll had, a, had, had the two with a, just a little bit of a gap between the two. Uh, uh, between uh, Purdue and, and Ossoff. And, and one of the things that the poll showed was was that Purdue has been able to hold on to just a few more white voters than Donald Trump in Georgia. And that, that, that has made the difference. Okay, interesting. Thank you for that. Okay, well, and that's a good segue to uh, the other race. And Patricia, you wrote a story today about a Quinnipiac poll that's out. Tell us about uh, what it said. I think you're on mute. You're on, you're on mute, Patricia. <laughs> I swore I wouldn't stay on mute. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I was going to say um, the biggest news out of that Quinnipiac poll that we saw uh, come out today is that for the very first time in that Senate special election race, Raphael Warnock is actually leading by quite a relatively large margin for any race here in Georgia. He's up by about eight points at 31%, and to follow him, it's a statistical tie between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins at 20 and 21 percent. Following them, again, is Matt Lieberman at 9 percent and Ed Tarver at 4 percent. And as uh, Greg mentioned earlier, there have been very vocal calls for Matt Lieberman especially to leave that race so that Democratic voters, in the opinion of national Democrats, so that they can consolidate that support and push Warnock closer to that magic 50 percent mark which is when he would not have to face either of those two Republicans in a runoff. That would be a very, very high lift, but it's made almost impossible with Matt Lieberman polling as high as 10, 11, 12% in this race. So that's the big news out of the Quinnipiac poll. Uh, The other news that we saw, um, John Ossoff is up by about one point over David Perdue in that second Senate race because there's a margin of error in this poll of about 2.9%. They're really tied, and that's what that tells us. 
But anybody who's lived in Georgia for a long time knows it's unusual for the Democrat and the Republican to be tied at this point. So for Ossoff's camp, they're happy to see that number. And then I would say the rest of that poll really shows what we've seen in this trend in the presidential race, which is with Joe Biden and Donald Trump basically tied in the state. Again, that's not the type of result that we've seen here in Georgia in a very long time. The Pew poll shows Joe Biden at 50%, Donald Trump at 47%. Democrats say he's leading. You know, we're going to say that they look statistically tied. Um, this, the timing of this poll was very interesting because this is the first poll that we've seen since Amy Coney Barrett was nominated by President Trump. This poll was in the field for about five days. In the middle of that five days, the president nominated Amy Coney Barrett to be the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. They didn't ask specifically about merit as a choice, but they did ask whether Georgians would like to see that seat filled before the election as Republicans want to do or after the election as Democrats are pushing. And we saw majorities of Georgians, I mean, likely voters say they'd rather see those filled after the election. So there was a lot of, um, a lot to dig into for that Q poll. For the Warnock race in particular, we don't know if this is an outlier. I mean, it's very different from what we've seen so far or if this is a trend for Warnock. So we'll continue to watch these polls one after the other after another and see if this is a trend for Warnock. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Patricia. And speaking of, of takeaways, I mean, one of the reasons why we poll, uh, the AJC's polling and uh, the political world is coming to Georgia to poll is to figure out, you know, where voters stand and the type of issues that might influence where they stand and how they might vote. So we're going to go now to Tia, because one of those issues this campaign season has been policing and protest. So our poll asked voters about where they stood on those issues, and there were some interesting takeaways, and you've written about it. So talk to us a little bit about what the poll said and what you found as you talked to people about those issues. Yes, so... The way we framed it when I wrote particularly about the polls when it comes to policing and protests is it exposed kind of a cultural fault line in America because when you drill down on the poll results, we saw that white people were much more likely to be less invested, less supportive of the protests, less invested in the issues of police brutality and systemic racism than the black respondents. But we also saw that younger people were more supportive of the protests, more invested in these issues than older people. Then of course, probably more predictable was that partisan divide. So those who identified as Republican or conservative were again, less supportive of the protests, less invested in those issues. And it was pretty stark. For example, one of our questions was, you know, which one bothers you more? Protests if when they turn violent or police brutality. And 65% um, of black voters said they were more concerned about the actions of police. 60% of white voters said they were more concerned about protests that turn violent. And even when we called some of the respondents of the survey and asked them to, you know, explain more of their concerns, when we spoke uh, to some of the white participants in the survey, they brought up, you know, they would say, you know, we, I'm all for marching and I'm all for peaceful, but when things are not peaceful, that's, that was a concern for them. But um, many of them had perhaps not the most accurate mindset of 
the scope of the protests and that the vast majority of the protests were peaceful. Um, there was a lot more focus on the fact that some of the protests were not and not as much focus on the issues that were the, the litmus or litmus, the impetus for the protests. Now, uh, we've heard from the president and we've heard from Republicans, uh, the magic phrase law and order. So in talking to people, uh, did anyone regurgitate some of what uh, the messaging there? Because I guess that will give us some indication as to whether or not, you know, that message is resonating. I think so. There were, of course, a lot of the respondents who identified as conservative or Republican um, talked a lot about wanting to back the police, that they don't believe in defunding the police and that um, there are just a, most police are good officers and, of course, root out any bad ones. But by and large, policing is is not the problem. Um, and so and again, the nuance there is, for example, defund the police is not something that Georgia lawmakers on either side of the um, of the aisle have pushed for as far as lawmakers currently in office in leadership roles, for example, Mayor Bottoms has not advocated for defund the police. Um, and, and so again, there's a little bit of disconnect because some of the messaging about what the movement, um, the protests are pushing for isn't always what's being reflected by those who are not as supportive of the protests. Um, and then on the other side, you have, you know, wanting to go further in some of the reforms is again, those same fault lines exist when, when there are reforms on the table. And that's being reflected not only with our survey, but we know covering the races in the, the US Senate races, the congressional races, they've now become issues on the campaign trail, particularly in the contrast between Republican candidates and Democratic candidates. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tia. That, that's uh, one, one, appreciate that. And two, um, in terms of issues that will influence the race, that certainly is, is one of them. And uh, races both, not only the presidential race, of course, but uh, the race is down ballot. Uh, it's an issue that uh, we have to resolve and an issue that's not going anywhere. And uh, that's a perfect way to pivot to another issue that has been uh, pretty important and on voters' mind, and that is the handling of COVID and our response. And our poll dug into that. And Patricia, you wrote a little bit about that. Uh, talk about what our poll found and what your reporting reflected uh, uh, with um, uh, confidence in how it's being handled and how perhaps that might influence um, the election or how people... Yeah. Well, we saw a really divided group of Georgians here in this poll. About half of them support what Governor Kemp is doing and about half disapprove of what Governor Kemp is doing to handle the coronavirus here in the state. The largest majority that we saw in this poll was the question about whether people are worried that they themselves or anyone in their family could be exposed to coronavirus. And 65% of Georgians, and that was a very large majority of Democrats and a plurality of Republicans said, that they are worried about the coronavirus and being exposed to it. But then when you get down into the details of the policies and the people enacting those policies, that's when the split really starts to show itself. So again, how is Kemp doing? 49% disapprove, 48% approve. When you get over to the presidential race, we asked it in that frame, 
Joe Biden had just a slight edge on the president. 49% said they felt that Joe Biden would handle the coronavirus situation better in the future. <clears throat> While about 47% said they felt that the president would handle better in the future. And when you dig into those partisan numbers, it's so interesting because when you ask people, how is the president handling this? 81% of Democrats said they strongly or, or somewhat disapprove of what the president is doing. Flip the switch, look at the Republicans. 86% of Republicans strongly approve of what the president is doing and how he's handling it or somewhat approve of him. So there's a strong partisan overlay into how people are viewing the coronavirus. I don't think that's news to anybody who's been living it um, recently. But it certainly was news to us when we look at these polls and how really tightly aligned it is with people's political opinions and their political behaviors, um, even for something that is uh, just a, a really serious health issue. Politics has really um, taken a leading role in how people are viewing it. And um, I think that uh, when we talked to voters, it was so interesting to hear why they felt this way and how they felt this way and how they articulated their feelings. I spoke with a Democratic voter who said she would give Trump a triple F. And I said, well, who are you voting for? She said, obviously Joe Biden, and it's because of coronavirus. And I spoke with a Republican voter who said that uh, she felt like if Donald Trump had gone out and said that he felt like the situation was really serious and said that everybody should be worried, that that would have been really poor leadership on his part. So it was really viewed in how they view the president as how they view way of handling the coronavirus. So it's one of many issues where we've seen um, certainly partisan politics play a role in how people are seeing the world around them. Um, and I think we can expect that to play a large role in how they vote in November. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, we're going to have to take a little bit of a commercial break here. So uh, we're going to do that and we will be right back. And when we come back, uh, we will do a couple of things. We will talk uh, more about uh, voting because obviously uh, casting a ballot, meaning uh, is it going to be difficult for me and what are my options? So we'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, you know, and uh, we'll also take some questions. Uh, we are on Facebook, we're on YouTube, and you guys are sending questions and we have a, a lot of them. So we'll try to spend some time uh, addressing some of your questions. So uh, we are off to our commercial break. and We'll see you in just a second. In 1985, a white man walked into a black church and killed a beloved couple during Bible study. I heard the shots, four shots. There's a man serving two life sentences for the South Georgia murders, but he says he's innocent, and even some of the investigators who worked the case believe him. I wanted to see what the evidence showed about him and about other suspects. Imperfect Alibi, Tuesday, October 6th on GPB. Okay, we're back, and thank you. So um, now that uh, we've got uh, that housekeeping out, we'll continue with our conversation. Uh, of course, uh, in this very this year of upheaval and change and uh, dealing with COVID, uh, one of the issues here in Georgia that we're dealing with especially is voting. And Mark Nisi, you have been following this for a long time. <laughs> so uh, we, you wrote the stories about what happened during the primary, we had uh, Georgians here in lines that, that lasted for hours. People were in line for six or seven hours to vote. Uh, we had issues with absentee ballots. Uh, in some places, it was a real mess. Uh, so 
Talk a little bit about the poll, because we asked people about their confidence and ask them about how they're going to vote and talk a little bit about what you found when you talk to people about uh, their intentions and what they think about uh, casting a ballot this uh, this fall. It's really interesting to me how much voter behavior has changed this year because of the coronavirus. You know, in past years, very few people voted absentee. It was like 6% in the 2018 election for governor. And then in the primary, it went up to almost half, 49%. And that is going to continue to a large extent in the general election. And the AJC poll kind of broke that down a little bit. We're not going to get 49% of people voting absentee, but it might be... um, around a third or more of all voters voting absentee. And so what the AJC poll showed is that overall we're about um, 37% said they want to vote early in person, another 27% said absentee and 34% said election day. And I think that's about right. And that's um, generally aligns with what election officials are planning for and hoping for. The more people who vote early and absentee, the less problems you'll have at the poll on election day. But at the same time, everybody is so invested in this election. It is going to be high turnout. Um, Talking to people who responded to the polls, whether no matter their political party or age or belief, they were all very committed to having their vote count and their voice heard in this election. It's just a matter of how they want their vote count and their voice heard. And that's where we see some differences um, by belief and political party. We see Democrats, people who identified themselves as Democrats, more likely to say they were going to vote absentee, and people who identified themselves as Republicans, much more likely to say they'll vote in person on election day. And when I asked them why, um, you had some people say, well, I want to make sure my vote counts on election day. That's the only way I can feel confident. And then others said, I'm going to vote absentee. That's the only way I can feel confident. (laughs) So, you know, it depends on people's perspective. Um, But, you know, either way, it's highly likely that your vote will be counted. And it's a matter of preference. Um, We did see some difference in age. You know, younger and older people are more likely to vote absentee by mail. And that makes sense that um, older Georgians more at health risk would be more likely to avoid human contact at the polls. And it also makes sense to me that younger voters would be less ingrained in their behavior and less used to going to the polling place. But a lot of people say, I always vote in person and I'm going to vote this election and I'm going to vote the way I'm used to. Even so, you know, even if we end up at 30 or 33 percent of people voting absentee, that's still a huge increase from what we've seen in past elections. And so I do expect um, that it'll be just fascinating to watch. Hopefully, um, I think everyone wants to or all election officials especially want people to turn out early, either absentee or in person. And that's universal among the political parties too, you know, where you see differences between election day and absentee, but when it comes to early in-person voting, you don't see much of a difference between Democrats and Republicans, um, generally in the 30 something percent range of people saying they're going to vote early in person. And that has been a popular way of voting in prior years. So, you know, we're expecting turnout of 5 million. That would be a record in Georgia if we get 5 million voters. And let's 
let's say we get 1.7 million absentee and the rest voting on election day or in person, you know, another third on election day, that would be another 1.7 million or so, which would be a little bit less than in prior elections in 2016 and 2018. So hopefully the poll workers and election officials will be able to manage that load even with higher overall turnout. Okay, and I think we just put up some key dates too that folks need to remember uh, if you plan to cast a ballot, uh, there are some some dates where you need to act in order to register, in order to request an absentee ballot, uh, know when uh, in your county, uh, when uh, early voting, uh, in-person voting opens. And of course, uh, there's gonna be election day. And so uh, so clearly we're gonna have, uh, as Mark says, uh, a, a fun election day because we're gonna have really heavy turnout and we've got COVID and uh, there's an element of, of some things that we just really won't, uh, don't know what to expect. So we'll have to be prepared for everything. And Mark, before I let you go, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about what you got coming up uh, Thursday, because you're going to be doing a Facebook Live and you'll be talking about. I'll be talking about absentee voting, everything you need to know about it, um, how secure the process is, how long it'll take your ballot to arrive, where drop boxes are, how to track your ballot, how to apply for a ballot, when ballots will be counted, how they'll be counted, how long we'll be waiting to get results, and whether that's in part because of absentee ballots still arriving at election offices. And we know, you know, already we have 1.3 million people have applied for absentee ballots in Georgia as of yesterday. That's a lot. Um, by comparison, 1.1 million voted absentee in the primary. So we already have more requests than people who voted in the primary. And of those 1.3 million, we already have 66,000 votes that have been turned in, 66,000 absentee ballots returned and waiting in election offices to be counted on election day. And that number is only going to increase. So you look at the election data, 25,000 people a day or so are requesting absentee ballots. And that's been pretty consistent over the last two weeks. And there's still five weeks out for the, from the election, plenty of time to request an absentee ballot and return it in time to be counted on November 3rd. Okay. Well, um, we'll, we'll uh, take a couple of questions for, from uh, our audience. And I have one here that speaks specifically to election night. And what it wants to know is that how long do you think we'll have to wait uh, to count absentee ballots and mail-in ballots that will certainly, as you've said, be more due to the coronavirus pandemic so how long do you think we'll be waiting to make a call? And I guess that's the question everyone has, but, but Mark, you've, you've, uh, you're closest to this than, than, than anyone. And I know that uh, election officials are asking this questions of themselves too. I don't think anybody should expect results to be quick or uh, calls to come of races early in the evening or even late in the evening. That said, there will be a large number of absentee ballots that are counted on election night, as well as all the in-person votes. Um, under a state election board rule, absentee ballots can begin to be processed two weeks in a day before election day, although they can't be counted until polls close on election night. But if they have them all lined up and scanned and ready to go, all election officials have to do is push a button to tabulate those absentee ballots they've already processed. 
And so those will be done. All the in-person votes will be done pretty quickly on election night. But then we'll have to wait for all the tens or hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots that arrive either on election day or in the days immediately before election day. And, you know, that's a significant number, even with all the results that we do get on election night. If there are who knows how many absentee ballots will come in at the last minute. And all of those have to be tabulated and counted and verified to make sure that they're accurate and that they are from legitimate voters and all the other protocols and safety precautions that they do. And as we saw from the primary, absentee ballots that do arrive close to election day do take several days to count. So in a close race that could depend on those absentee ballots, I think voters and election officials are going to have to be a little bit patient. Okay. All right, thank you. Uh, we'll take another one too from our, our audience. And this uh, probably uh, between Greg and Tia, maybe Jim. Uh, we have a, a reader who wants to know about debates, especially between, um, between Purdue and Ossoff. So is there, is there a debate schedule that we can talk about and, uh, and, and what does it look like? I think Greg's our expert on that one. Yeah, right, the, first day, the first debate between Purdue and Ossoff I'm loading up is October 12th, the same day early voting starts. Uh, they are having three different debates. Um, the first one is the Atlanta Press Club debate. They're also doing one with the Savannah TV station and the final one with WSB here in Atlanta right before the Sunday before the election. Um, there are also at least one debate, um, but hopefully more in, the, in that crazy special election with 21 candidates. Uh, and that one's going to be an Atlanta Press Club debate as well. In um, I don't have the date of this up here. Um, I'm moderating that one, so I should know that one, but that is the second week of October too, if I think, if I'm, no, it's the October 19th. So um, the third week of October. Um, but that one will actually, is so big, there's two separate panels, one with the candidates who are kind of, you know, in the single digits or lower in the polls, and the other with the top five or six candidates who, uh, who have higher standing in the polls. Okay, all right, well, we'll, we'll take one, one last question. And this is sort of a, a, a two-parter. Uh, we have a, a reader who wants to know about uh, the state of the race in the 6th Congressional District and the state of the race in the 7th Congressional District. Now, we did not poll for, the, for those, but we've been following them. And you know, the campaigns have uh, wanted to tell us about their internal polling. So you guys have some sense of, of how it's going. So talk about the 6th and talk about the 7th. So uh, 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 I'll take that one and then let my colleagues jump in. So. The 6th and the 7th district are both suburban Atlanta districts. You have the 6th district, which is incumbent Lucy McBath, who was part of that blue wave of 2018. And she's in a, reach, a rematch with Republican Karen Handel. Karen Handel won that 2017 special election against John Ossoff, was in Congress for a little bit less than two years, lost to Lucy McBath. Now they're back again. And that district is like Cobb County, North Fulton, a little bit of North DeKalb. And it's considered a toss up, a toss up, but leaning Democratic is what a lot of the kind of those election outlook uh, crystal ball um, predictor websites say that it leans Democratic, you know, that McBath with the power of the incumbency, as well as the demographics in Metro Atlanta starting to lean toward Democratic candidates. Now, in the seventh district, you have Carolyn Bordeaux, 
who in 2018 came very close, but did not unseat incumbent Rob Woodall. But it was the closest House race in the nation that um, a Democrat narrowly lost. And yeah. so Rob Woodall, again, changing demographics, that district is Gwinnett and a little bit of Forsyth County. Um, Rob Woodall decided I'm retiring, I'm not doing this again. And so Carolyn Bordeaux is back as the Democrat. Her Republican opponent now is Rich McCormick, who's an emergency room doctor. So he has a very compelling story. He's a military veteran. You know, um, he went to the Morehouse College of Medicine and Republicans are very excited that that he could be someone who could win even in this suburban district where the Democrat, where the Democrats are starting to win seats and the demographics are shifting towards Democrats. However, once again, although the race is considered one that is going to be close, the election predictor sites again have listed District 7 as tilting toward the Democratic candidate, who again is Bordeaux. Um, in both races, the parties are putting money behind their candidates. So you've got uh, super PACs and the actual party apparatus um, doing ads and everything, because again, these are the Democrats are trying to keep their majority. Republicans are hoping to claw back. Um, but the with there's not a lot of polling there. Um, but again, you have Macbeth with the power of the incumbency making it, um, you know, more of an uphill battle. And then in the seventh, even more so, Democrats are in the driver's seat, just frankly, because of the demographics in that district. Yeah, just to, just to, to, to kind of riff off of what Tia was saying, that's that's kind of an interesting dis, uh, difference between the sixth and the seventh. Uh, the sixth district is has, has far more white voters, and what's driving that race is is the shift of suburban white suburban college educated women from the Republican camp into the Democratic camp. And in, in Gwinnett, it's it's in Gwinnett in, in the seventh district, it's more of a straight up demographic shift. I mean, you've really seen, uh, I mean, Gwinnett is, is, is now a, a majority minority uh, county, uh, and, 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 it, and it shows up in its, its voting, uh, voting rules as well. Okay. All right. That's interesting. So, so um, there was a, a, a narrative about, uh, nationally, about this race being uh, decided in the suburbs. So uh, President Trump's re-election uh, being decided in the suburbs. So what does this tell us, Jim? I mean, we're you're telling us that we've got a demographic shift in in in, um, in Gwinnett, but but you've got Republicans actually walking away from the president and Cobb. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. That's the, yeah. In, in Cobb and in, in North Fulton, it's it's inter in, it's interesting when you know when Stacey Abrams put together her her gubernatorial race in 2018. You know, she was she was she was her her point was uh, that Democrats should stop going after the middle uh, the middle of the road the centrist voters and kind of uh, uh, double down on 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 going after voters of color which she did what she didn't anticipate was the antip antipathy of 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 white suburban women voters uh, and and that has kind of that has kind of moved things along in Georgia I think a little bit faster than anybody's than anybody has anticipated so yeah, yeah. It's it's. What's interesting is this this new the old Democratic coalition was rural white uh, rural white voters and urban black voters. Now the new the new one the new one is young white 
suburban voters and and uh, and and urban African American voters. It's 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 a really fascinating dynamic. Okay, great. All right. Well, we're um, we're running uh, close on time. I want to go to Susan to talk a little bit about uh, why we poll and also how we conducted this poll and our polling philosophy and plans. Uh, we think uh, that uh, polling is important. So you can tell them, Susan, uh, why it's important and what we get out of it. Sure thing. Uh, the first thing I would say is this poll is not going to tell you who's going to win the election. And any poll you look at is don't count on that telling you who's going to win the election, because as we know from 2016, things can change. Um, there was a lot written about, you know, a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth about the quality of polls in 2016, but on the whole, polling was pretty accurate, certainly in the national, uh, in the, looking at the national numbers. Um, but there were some key states that were off, and that's where, you know, that's how, how the electoral college is, is uh, at play there. And it, that, that's what led to many people being surprised in 2016. But polling is worthwhile. It gives us, it's our, our best and really only tool for getting a look at what's on people's minds. And so we think it's uh, worth investing. It's only a piece, a small part of the reporting we do and these fine people um, on your screen do. Um, but uh, it gives us a look at not just the horse race numbers, but we get a sense for what issues matter to people. And so um, it, it's worth, worth the investment for us and for, for readers, we hope. Um, the University of Georgia does our polling. Um, they've been doing that for several years for us. Their polling uh, department has grown and they've been doing a really good job. Um, it, it, it's um, organized and led by Dr. Trey Hood, um, and we've been working with him for some time. This poll we talked to, um, uh, it had a pretty good sample size, uh, over a thousand Georgia voters. Um, and these are likely voters, voters we know from their voting histories have a, a history of voting and also who told us that they were likely voters. Um, uh, let's see, we do wait the poll for, uh, traditionally pollsters have waited for, you know, race and uh, some other factors. Um, we wait now for education as well. And that was one of the big issues with some of the state polls in 2016. But um, we think that they do a pretty good job for it, but we would not promise uh, that this is gonna reflect the outcome because there's a lot of days before, before people are, before the votes actually get counted. Um, we will be polling again. Um, we plan to poll um, in later October, so we'll have a, a poll pretty close to the election. So uh, stay tuned for, for more. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Susan. Uh, we really appreciate that. Well, we're getting close on time, but we wanted to give uh, each of you guys uh, one uh, last say. And uh, I had a bit of a question for you. I mean, this has been such an unpredictable election season, uh, unlike any other that we've seen. And I don't know if it'll be like any other that we'll see in the future, but it's certainly been unconventional by a lot of means. So just wanted to get uh, a thought from each of you about what each Georgia voter should really think about uh, as they cast their ballots, meaning that they want to make sure that it counts, or also, too, that they just really want to be informed about, uh, you know, the candidate stakes and what's there. So what would you, what advice or what, what takeaway for, from each of you? And I'll start with uh, Patricia, since she's at the bottom of my screen, I'll work my way up. Okay. 
my advice to readers, to my friends and my family um, is to think globally and vote locally. People know so much about the presidential race. There are almost no undecider, undecided voters left as we just discussed, but I'm constantly surprised and dismayed how little most voters know about their local elections, their state house representatives, their state senators, what district are they in, what's the difference between the U.S. House and the state house. Um, the AJC has such remarkably unbelievable coverage on those local races and a lot of background on those um, on those, especially the state house and state senate, and what happened in the last set, the last session. That there is a trove of information for you to wade through and start your research now, so you can get to the bottom of the ticket and still know what your choices are, because these choices have never been more important. All right, thank you, thank you, Patricia, and we'll go next to Mark. How about it, Mark? Well, it strikes me how much you know. While people might already know how they're going to vote at the top of the ticket or even most of the ticket, it's still important to pay attention because so much is changing so fast this year with elections and how people vote. We saw that before the primary with polling places closing and poll workers dropping out and social distancing and long lines. And now we're going through it again for the general, although things have changed a good bit and though they're continued to change. A lot of polling places have been added, poll workers have been hired and we'll see how it goes. It's always hard in a high turnout election, but everything is shifting constantly, including the deadline for when absentee ballots will be returned. You know, a judge ruled at the end of August that they can be postmarked by election day and counted if they're received within three days afterward, but that is being appealed and we'll get a ruling on that pretty soon, I believe, from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So even the deadline for when absentee ballots must be received is in flux, whether they can be received three days after election day or traditionally under state law, they have to be received by 7 p.m. on election day. So I would encourage voters to keep watching and paying attention so that you know how to make sure your vote counts. Okay, thank you, Mark, I appreciate that. How about it, Mr. Galloway? Uh, I, would, I would ask voters just to kind of realize the, the larger stream that they're swimming in, and and that is and that is there's this tremendous uh, demographic shift going on in the United States, and and uh, in Georgia in particular, we are headed for in in in, in just a few election cycles, uh, white voters will not be a majority in 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 Georgia in Georgia voting, and this race is part of a decision that we all are going to have to make jointly as to whether a multiracial democracy is going to survive. Oh, okay. Eddie stuff. All right. Uh, how about it, Susan? Um, I will tell you, or I will recommend, or I will tell you there's a good place you can find a lot of the information you need for before you go to the polls. Um, um, go to AJC.com, read the newspaper, um, we will be producing our voters guide on October 11th in that Sunday paper will be a special section and that will also be online and we're going to do um, summaries of all the big races um, with with the basics on what you need to know, along with some voting information so. We're trying our best to, to keep you uh, informed and if there are questions that you have reach out to us and we'll try and get them answered. 
Excellent. Okay. Greg Bluestein, how about it? Um, I'll echo everyone else, inform yourself. This is such a uh, challenging cycle to be a voter to because you have fewer opportunities than before to actually hear the candidates because of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of candidates aren't going door to door. They're not, you're, you're not seeing as many people out there um, passing out literature or having rallies or having other campaign events. There certainly are some, and we're doing our best to cover the major ones, um, but there are fewer than we've seen, and especially on the Democratic side. Uh, most Democratic candidates have, have not resumed in-person campaigning, which means that, that TV ads and social media ads are playing even a bigger role than they have in, pa in past years. And I did, I'd also just say, don't believe the ads Think, inform yourself. Uh, the ads are in, important because they're part of a, cam, a candidate's messaging, um, but they're also just wild. <laughs> you have a candidate favorably considering yourself to tell of the hun. You've got candidates spewing all sorts of dirt on other candidates. There's, it's, there's a mess of, of different messaging out there. And so your job and our job is to help you do this, but is to muddle through all that and filter out what to believe and what you're, what's important to you and what's not. And uh, we're, we're going to do our very best to help you fulfill that mission. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate that. And Tia Mitchell. I'm going to end um, with this. Come up with a plan for how you're going to vote. Um, there, a lot of people are saying there are so many things being thrown at them. They want someone to tell them what's the best way to cast a ballot. There is no good or bad way, but each method has its pros and cons and potential, you know, potential places where your vote could not be counted if you don't follow the right rules or if you get there on election day and the lines are super long. So what we all have to do is weigh the pros and cons, make sure you're reading on your elections websites or on AJC.com um, about the different options and then execute your plan, but make sure you have contingencies, for example, about checking your My Voter page. Please check your My Voter page. It not only tells you if you've requested an absentee ballot or if your ballot was received, but it can tell you where your precinct are, where mm -hmm. early voting locations are, who are the people that are gonna be on your ballot so you know who you need to research to decide who you're gonna vote for. So all of that is about you know coming up with your plan for how you're gonna vote and make sure you execute that plan. Make sure, you know, depending on which which way you're going to vote, you do those things that helps ensure that your vote is counted. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Tia. And that's, that's the last word. And we will conclude here. And I'd like to thank Juan, you guys, for uh, spending some time with our, our readers. Uh, this is pretty vitally important. I'd also like to talk a little bit about subscribing to the AJC. Uh, we are able to poll. We're able to employ such fine people who are uh, among the best in the business to do this sort of work because you subscribe. So without you, none of this can happen. Uh, so we are really dependent upon you. And if you are, uh, ever have any questions, uh, there, there are ways to reach us. Uh, we work daily on the two-way conversation between uh, you and us. Uh, social media is a great place. Uh, and we've got folks who are, who are on this panel who are just fantastic at social media. And, um, you know, I'm pretty easy to find and Susan is too. So if, uh, if you ever have any question, we're, we want to answer it, but, uh, but please subscribe. I mean, that's how we, we do this. And, um, you know, if uh, you ever have any questions about doing that, uh, go to AJC.com uh, and there are directions on how you can subscribe. 
So I want to thank each of you, and uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off. So thank you very much. And again, Election Day is upon us, and that AJC special section, I got to plug that one more time. October 11th, look for your voters' guide. It will be in print. You will love it. And on that note, we'll say good evening. Thank you, guys. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.